This morning I've chosen a bit of an unusual uh, Bible passage for our sermon text this morning. And um, uh, there's, uh, the reason I've done that, and I'll read the text in a minute, is because I think it really addresses two questions that are often uh, in our minds if we don't say them out loud. Very often they're in the back of our minds. And the two questions are, are this, when we think about reaching the world for Jesus Christ. Can God really accept anyone? Now, we might just quickly say, well, of course he accepts everyone. But, but I mean, really, are there some people that are just too hard to reach? Or some people that are just too far on the margins? They're too far gone. They're too hard-nosed. They're too difficult. They're, they're too embedded in, in another religion. And so we quietly suspect that, you know, even though we ought to be sharing the gospel with them, it's really probably not going to, to do much good. They're just too far from God or they're too repugnant. And I think especially these days that people in our society who, who, who were revolted by, and we think of the terrible things that happened even this week uh, in Florida. And, and uh, you know, could people who do these kinds of things, are they just too far gone? Could God really reach them? And then the other question is, could God really use anybody for his purposes in his mission? Because I think a lot of us sort of assume there are certain people who are super gifted, they're, they're talented, they're, um, you know, called by God in some extraordinary way. And they're the ones that get the front stage and then there's kind of all the rest of the people who really don't have that much significant to do. And, and many people are sort of thinking, well, you know, given my background, my history, my failures, my personality, my weaknesses, et cetera, et cetera, you know, I, God couldn't really use me in any kind of significant way. And maybe your whole life you've been receiving messages that say, that's right, that's right, you're, you're kind of the, one of those people who doesn't really have much to contribute. And God will pass you over for the important task. Well, I think the story we're going to read today is going to help us answer a couple of those questions I hope in a personal way. And so if you want to read with me, I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 8. And this is the story of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so I'm going to be reading starting at uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading a book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, uh, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came along some, some, to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? 
And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Astos and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, I'm not going to focus on Philip. You might think so, you know, missions conference, Philip the evangelist, and uh, so that would be the center of our, our story here. But, but actually, Philip is not the centerpiece of this story. There's something far more profound happening here than what we see in Philip, and I want to focus on this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, <laughs> you know, what, what could this guy possibly have to do with modern-day modern society and your and my life? I mean, think about this guy. This, this, he's, he's, he's riding in a chariot, a castrated finance minister from an African country on a religious pilgrimage, reading from, from a, a religious scroll. I mean, that's just not my world, right? <laughs> um, but, but I believe that with his example, what God is going, doing with him and will do with him really shows us how God can reach and embrace the most unlikely people who are furthest from him and how God can use the most unlikely people for his purposes and his mission in the world. So let's start with this. Unlikely people who God accepts. My first point, unlikely people who God accepts. So let's just take a look at this Ethiopian eunuch for a minute. First of all, he's nameless. He's just called the, the treasurer of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. We don't even know his name, even though he's got an important job. I think, you know, there's a lot of us kind of like that, like, oh, you're the brother of so-and-so, or, uh, oh, you work for that company. And, and so, our, you know, even our identity, it's like, we're not important. It's something else who we're connected with might be important. We don't even know his name. He's an African. Uh, uh, it's called here an Ethiopian, uh, but uh, Ethiopia at this time probably was not what is Ethiopia today. It was probably, <clears throat> well, we know it was actually a section of Africa that would be what is today more Sudan, uh, south of Egypt. We have a, a picture, I believe, a map that, that will show you uh, where um, that is. We can get the slide up for the next uh, slide here. There we go. And you can see there that red circled area would be where he came from. He probably had, uh, was black-skinned. And uh, so this is, this is where he was from. Quite a, quite a powerful region, by the way, to be treasured down there. The other thing we notice is that he is either Jew, a Jew or a God-fearer. Uh, that would be somebody who believes in the God of the Jews but was uncircumcised or had not fully become a Jewish proselyte. Now that's really strange because from everything we know from history, from archaeology, there's absolutely no evidence that in this part of Africa that there was a synagogue. So how would he have even heard of the God of Israel? What, what impacted him so greatly that he wants to make this enormous trip hundreds of miles to go worship in Jerusalem the God of, of Israel? Uh, this, is, this is rather remarkable when, when you start thinking about it. And not only that, we find out that, that he, he owns a copy of the scriptures, the, the Isaiah uh, scroll here. Um, now, what's he doing with that? This is highly unusual for a private person to, to be in the position to actually purchase you know, a handwritten copy of the scriptures. And yet there he is, riding along his chariot, if you can imagine, sort of bumping along the way, 
reading the scriptures. And uh, by the way, where did he learn Hebrew? You know, they didn't have all their modern translations into, you know, his language. So he's, he's reading Hebrew here. Where did he learn that? This guy's kind of a remarkable person. But here's the really key thing about him. He's a eunuch. And I assume most of you know what that means for a person to be a eunuch. And why is that significant? Because the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, strictly excluded a eunuch from being a part of the people of God and entering into the temple area for worship to the presence of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23.1 says, No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, if you don't think that's talking about eunuchs, read the, the ESV translation or read the, even the King James translation. It's very explicit, but for the sensitive ears in the room, I'm not going to read those translations, but they're talking about male body parts that have been cut off or damaged. And it's saying, if that, those kind of people do not come into my presence. They couldn't be priests. The Leviticus 21, Leviticus 22 says those kind of people who've had that kind of damage on their bodies cannot be a priest. And why is that? Because, because God is holy and anything that was, had this kind of a major imperfection should not enter into his presence. Of course, no one's really worthy to enter God's presence, but this was just one of God's ways of saying an imperfect animal, a lame or, or a damaged animal couldn't be even brought as a sacrifice. And so this person was excluded, deemed unfit to be a part of God's people. He would have been excluded. Just think about how this would have felt for him. He's traveled hundreds of miles in a chariot. And believe me, that's not like, you know, driving in your car. He drives hundreds of miles, many days journey to go to worship this God who somehow he's heard about but is totally impressed with. And he goes to the temple, he gets to the temple door, and what happens to him? Stop. Your kind are not allowed in here. Rejection. Marginalization. Unworthy. Unfit. To be a part of God's people. You'll have to worship somewhere out there. Now that kind of rejection was widespread in the ancient world. One historian writes, eunuchs were among the most ridiculed persons in ancient societies. The first century Jewish historian Josephus called eunuchs monstrosities. Can you imagine that? What kind of person are you? Oh, monstrosity. That, that. That describes what you are. Another Jewish writer, Philo, called them worthless persons. Worthless persons. They're at the bottom of society. They're the ones that are meaningless. They, sh they should be shoved out. They should be on the edges. And that was not only in the Jewish world, but in, in general in the ancient world. They were considered sexless. One ancient manuscript from Rome remarks that uh, eunuchs were, I quote, such people ought to be excluded, not simply from philosophy, but even from the temples and holy water bowls and all the places of public assembly. Anywhere where people come together to assemble, those people ought to be pushed out. They should be stopped at the door. 
He go, the same guy goes on to write, it's an ill omen, ill met sight if on first leaving home in the morning one should set eyes on any such person. It's like one of those, those bad news days. You get up, you step out the door, and you see a eunuch. It's like, oh no, bad sign. That's the way people, that's the way people would have looked at this man. He's rejected by society. He's rejected by God. We might call him damaged goods, social outcast, someone to be avoided, someone to be scorned. Physically, emotionally, spiritually damaged. And I dare say that there are people in our society, maybe, maybe some of you, who are identifying with this right now. Now, outwardly, of course, he's a treasure. He's an important person. Socially, inwardly, worthless. Today, maybe it's skin color. Maybe it's ethnic background, clothing. Maybe a mental illness or a, a handicap. Your appearance. Social awkwardness. And, and I know that some, some people, they've, they've gotten these messages all along like, eh, you know, who are you? And, 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 and we, we've been hearing that or we've been telling ourselves that and, and we've been kind of telling ourselves, yeah, I mean, God probably thinks the same way about me. But this eunuch is an unbelievable demonstration of the grace of God why is this story in Luke's gospel? Why did God go to such extreme measures to connect the gospel with this man? I mean, if you were listening to the story, Philip hears a voice from God, go to, go to this desert place, like, okay, that's a little odd, fine, do that. Oh, happens to run into this guy, okay, go, go up to that chariot, listen to this guy, follow them. Okay, you know, God's just directing Philip in all these weird ways. And what does this guy just happen to be reading? Isaiah 53? Like, huh, is this an accident? Isaiah 53, you know what Isaiah 53 is saying, you know, about how Christ, the Messiah, was going to be rejected. If he'd been reading just a verse before the part that's quoted in Acts 8, it says that he, the Messiah, the Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds were healed. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of all. Now, is that some accident that God leads Philip, that God leads the, the eunuch to be reading this, and then they just come together and he's saying, hey, what does this mean? God has orchestrated this whole situation for something extremely profound. Because what is going to happen here is a prophecy from the Old Testament about this bursting forth of the grace of God is going to be fulfilled right here and now. Because if he would just read a little bit later in Isaiah chapter 56, a couple chapters later, this is what he would have read, the eunuch. In Isaiah 56, starting at verse 3, it says, Let no foreigner, that is Gentile, non-Jew, let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, to hold my covenant, 
To them I will give within my temple walls, within my temple walls, a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners, non-Jews, Gentiles, who bind themselves to the Lord and minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, to keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, to hold my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Did you hear what that was saying? That those people who previously had not been a part of God's people, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, the pagans, the eunuchs explicitly, the day will come when they're not only going to be accepted, they're not only going to be able to worship in the house of God, they're going to be better than the children of God. That day is going to come, the prophet Isaiah says. And guess what? Acts chapter 8. This is the day. So think for a minute what's going through the head of this eunuch. The better translation, by the way, there the eunuch asks Philip, what could stand in the way of me being baptized? And you know what he's thinking. He's just been to the temple where he gets turned away. And he's, he's, he's kind of half-fearing that Philip's going to say, ha, of course there's something to hinder you from being baptized. You're a eunuch. No. Some of the old manuscripts put it in. Do you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing would stop you from being baptized, which means nothing would stop you, can get you in the way of being fully accepted as a child of God, of God's people. And something utterly new bursts into what theologians call salvation history. This prophecy is fulfilled. The message of God's grace is bursting beyond the boundaries of Israel, and it's embracing Gentiles. It's embracing the scum of society, the marginalized and the rejected, like the eunuchs. Yes, even they, if they have faith in the Messiah, which you've just been reading about in Isaiah 53, yes, you will be fully accepted. Now, can I make that a little personal? Oh, by the way, just backing up a minute, did you hear that little phrase, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Anybody recognize that where, when Jesus quoted that? Sound familiar, anybody? Come on, Sunday school teachers, folks. Jesus quotes that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations when he's driving the robbers out of the temple area. Why doesn't Jesus quote, thou shalt not steal, right? He calls them, them robbers. Because Jesus is actually thinking of something else. He's not worrying about them giving bad money exchange. Because we know historically that those money changers, they set up their tables and their businesses in what is called the court of the Gentiles. You see, the temple area in Jerusalem had these, these different courts and different 
people could get closer to God. If you're a priest, you got to the close part. If you're a man, you got to the next part. If you're a woman, Jewish woman. And then there's the court of the Gentiles, kind of this far out court. And so the money changers say, well, we don't care. You know, Gentiles, these pagans, they don't need to come and worship God. So we'll just set up our tables here. And I think that's what God Jesus so ticked off. Because he's saying, wait a minute, you... My house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting Isaiah 56. And he says, that day's coming. That day is here where even Gentiles should be welcomed in my house. And so he quotes this. Make way for the Gentiles. They're going to be my people. So I just want to say, if you personally feel like you're one of those marginal people who somehow has been shoved to the edges of, of God's acceptance and, and because, you know, of, of all that you've done or all the people have said to you and because of all that you've beaten yourself up maybe with or, or because of some abuse in your background or because something you did and, and, and you're, you're, you're just thinking, you know, God, God couldn't accept me really. Take heart, take heart. Because never underestimate the ability of God's grace to embrace those most unlikely people. And that includes you. Those who lacked outward qualifications by now by grace are qualified. Those who are unfit for service are now by grace made whole and made fit. Those who are damaged are healed. Those who are impaired are considered able. Those who are incomplete are now completed. Those who are rejected are now restored. Those who are unacceptable are now made acceptable. Those who are marginalized are now embraced. There is no longer a first and second class Christian or first and second class person in relation to God. Now only one thing matters, faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ because he paid it all. That's how big the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was on the cross that now there's nothing of all these things which rightly would exclude you from God's fellowship. It's been wiped out of the way. And this eunuch is sort of the first little blip of what is going to become an avalanche of Gentiles and eunuchs and marginalized people coming to know the grace and the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes we're thinking maybe not so much just of people we know. Maybe, maybe there's a family member who you say, that, that person's just so far gone. Uh, you know, or a child or you know, a work colleague or something. Yeah, man, that, that, that person is, they're just in such a wrong crowd and you know, their, their, their head is just somewhere. They're not gonna, it's just that kind of person that's going to become a Christian. Don't believe it. The grace of God can break through. And the way he orchestrated Philip and all these circumstances, so it comes down to this moment. He, he can do that with that loved one, with that colleague. Sometimes we're thinking about those, those big blocks of religious people. You say, oh man, you know, they just don't become Christians. You know, they... Not only are there certain people we think their personality type, oh, that, that's a really tough, tough guy. You know, they don't, he would never become a Christian. But then there's these super religious types. These, man, they're, you know, they're really committed to their religion. They, you know, they, they don't become Christians. Don't say that. Don't say that. 
don't underestimate the grace of God. This guy had gone to the first training, got all excited, went out, came back two years later, said, I planted seven churches. Wow. And I mean, he had pictures in the whole bit. He's the former Hindu priest, village priest. And he's now leading a house church. The most unlikely people. Now, the need for discipleship, as you can imagine, and for further teaching is really huge. And we could just start going around the world and we'd be here for a very long time. But I'll give you just one more story. There are literally tens of thousands of Muslims coming to Christ. This is absolutely unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this in the history of Islam. Um, It is sensational. His brother was the first in the family to become a Christian. And he stood and he watched as his brother was literally stoned to death by his father and his uncles. His brother was a Christian martyr. And even as he watched this, he observed how his brother did not deny his faith, but like Stephen is praying that God would would forgive them. And he was so shaken and so spoken to by this, became a Christian. Literally in the face of death. Now, He's an evangelist and a church planter. And I just asked him, how many of you became a Christian because you had a dream of some kind? Half the hands went up in the room. Some kind of a dream, whether it was somehow Jesus appearing to them or or a, a dream saying, go talk to this person who's a Christian. This is the way God's working. Sometimes it's it's just supernatural sensational like that. Sometimes it's more just through natural means and conversations. But do not underestimate how God's grace can reach out to the most unlikely people and conquer their hearts and bring them into his fellowship. Don't underestimate that grace in your own life for God to forgive Don't underestimate that grace to touch other lives. And especially those at the furthest ends of the earth who seem so very far away. We're seeing this vision of Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 in our day being fulfilled where where it says that there will be those purchased by the blood of the Lamb from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue. That's coming to reality. And many of these people are people who God's brought to us. We've not been that good at getting out to them. So God says, okay, if you're not going to go to them, I'm going to bring to you. God's leading people from, from many of these countries where it is not easy to communicate the gospel, where there's very few Christians, and he's bringing them into our neighborhoods. Well, let me move on to, to our second point uh, more briefly here. Uh, the unlikely people who God can use. Not only is God's grace so great that he embraces the most unlikely, but he can use the most unlikely people. So the unlikely people who God can use. So you might be saying, okay, I get it. Uh, You know, God can reach Muslims. God can reach Hindus. He can reach my next door neighbor. But he, you know, he wouldn't use me to do that. You You know, I still barely made it in the kingdom, you know, myself. So that... You know, a lot of us are kind of thinking that way. God couldn't use me in a significant way. I'm not Philip, you know, I'm not gifted to be an evangelist. 
not spiritual enough, not gifted enough, not talented enough, etc. But I want you to just watch for a moment, listen for a moment, because there's something that's not explicitly stated in this scripture text, but we know it from other sources, and that is something quite remarkable. God demonstrates he can use even the most marginalized, the most wounded, the most rejected, the most unlikely for his purposes, because this Ethiopian eunuch becomes the first missionary to Africa. The very one who just days ago, probably, was rejected at the temple gate is now going to be sent off back to his home country and he will share the gospel there. How do we know this? Well, it's not stated in the Bible text, I admit that. But there's a couple of very strong indicators. First of all, Ethiopia was considered by the Jewish people to be the ends of the earth. It was one of the furthest places. The people were different ethnic, different skin color, all of this. You know, they were pagans. Now, if we look at how this is fitting into the story of the book of Acts, this is no accident. Some of you will know that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we have sort of the, uh, the roadmap, as it were, of how the gospel is going to spread. Jesus said to the disciples, when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come on you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that becomes sort of the structure for the book of Acts. So the first few chapters are talking about the church in Jerusalem. Persecution comes and the, the gospel starts spreading out into the outer areas of Judea around Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, the first verses leading up to our Bible text, the gospel has made it into Samaria. So what's next on the plan? Ends of the earth, right? Where's the ends of the earth? Ethiopia. This is no accident. This is why God's orchestrating all this to come together. Not only is Isaiah being fulfilled, but the words of Jesus is being fulfilled that the gospel is going to move out beyond the Jewish world, beyond the Samaritan world, which is sort of half Jewish, to the utterly Gentile pagan world, to the ends of the earth. And this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch of all people, gets to be the first one. It's not until Acts chapter 13 that Paul and Barnabas get sent out as apostles to the Gentiles. There's another reason that we know this. And that is because church historians, the earliest church historians, bear witness to this. For example, the church father Irenaeus, he's writing in about the year 180 AD, he says that the Ethiopian eunuch was, I quote, sent to the region of Ethiopia to preach what he himself had believed. And then one of the earliest church historians, Eusebius, writes in the 4th century of the Ethiopian eunuch, he is said to have been the first on returning to his country to proclaim the knowledge of God. And the Ethiopian Christian church today, to this day, attributes their existence back to this eunuch. So just think about the enormous reversal that has happened right here. From being marginalized, kept out, scorned upon, to right smack in the middle of God's salvation historical mission purpose. 
And I got to tell you something, he could do that with you. And I'm not exaggerating. And so the book of Acts it has this wonderful story and of course the trajectory just keeps going with the gospel spreading out and out. Never underestimate how God can use you to bring the gospel to those who seem furthest from him. So not only does God embrace those who are furthest and most unlikely, but he can use you to do that. Now there's a lot of ways he can do that. A lot of different ways. But it doesn't matter if you've struggled with a mental health issue. It doesn't matter if you've had gender dysphoria. It doesn't matter if you've had abuse in your childhood or abuse from a spouse. It doesn't matter if you've had feelings of shame or guilt. It doesn't matter if people have told you much of your life you're not going to amount to anything because God sees it differently. In 1 Corinthians 12, talking about the different spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul writes, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Those parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. And so seemingly insignificant people become extremely significant in God's bigger plan. Now, that part, that part of that bigger plan might not mean you becoming the next Hudson Taylor. Excuse me, that's probably not going to happen. Okay, so. But do not underestimate what might seem to be a very small role of having very big impact for the kingdom. Let me just finish with an example. I met him a few years ago. I'd been a missionary for seven years, and... Uh, he was reaching out through English, teaching English, sharing the gospel. For a time, he also pastored a little church. He's blind. He writes, I hesitated to write this, not wanting to draw attention to myself. However, I've realized that as a blind missionary, my story speaks volumes to the people I serve. Students in my English class are amazed that I can teach when I can't see. Blind people in this nation often get sucked into a corrupt mafia that uses them to beg for money or something equally as degrading. Simply walking to the local 7-Eleven can be a daunting task for me, yet living here I feel fulfilled and know I'm living the life God has called me to. And then he says, the calling to missions is too amazing to define or explain. I wonder how many people find an excuse not to go on to the field and live a life of regret. The human condition is such that we focus on the flaws that we have, the flaws in the plan that could hold us back from accomplishing what God intends for us. And then he concludes, living my life serving God, I've seen God's statement to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 that his grace is sufficient to be so true and relevant to me. And by the way, he's writing his PhD dissertation on how God works through weakness in his mission, like he did through Paul. So what's your excuse? And I think sometimes we assume too much, we underestimate the grace of God and the ability of God to work through the most unlikely. 
Today, there's still roughly one-third of the world's population that does not have a Christian witness, a missionary, a church in their locale that could communicate the gospel in a way that they understand it. The task before us is still enormous. And I am convinced God wants every one of us to be involved in that. And there is no insignificant role. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to this. Maybe your role is to be a willing servant behind the scenes, praying mightily, giving sacrificially, being an enabler, sending others, empowering others with your prayer. That is not insignificant. That is not second class. Perhaps God wants you to be that living, embodied evidence of God's grace to bring wholeness and healing to brokenness in a very broken world. Or perhaps God wants you to actually go. Maybe it's a short term, but we desperately need those who will commit to go to learn a language, to live with the people, to identify with the people, to be Jesus, hands and feet in the midst of that people, to be a living, ongoing witness for the gospel among those people. It hasn't changed since Jesus' day when he said the, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. That has not changed. So he said, pray for the Lord of the harvest. And I've seen God use retired people in remarkable ways. But Maybe some of you, you're sensing that God would have you follow something of a call like that. What's your excuse? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable story and the encouragement of, of what we see with this, what's happening with this Ethiopian eunuch and how you brought so many things together uh, to bring him into your kingdom and to make him your witness and your agent of grace and mercy to the ends of the earth. And God, will you continue to speak to our own hearts about how we need to accept your grace, be captivated by it, to rejoice in it, and also to be willing to serve you and make no excuse because you can use the most unlikely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.